This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Nestled on a bend of the River Rhine in the southwest corner of Germany is the city of Worms, or Worms. It's one of the oldest cities in Central Europe. It still has its early city walls, its 11th century Romanesque cathedral, and a 500-year-old, 500-year-old printing industry. But in its centre is a statue of a monk, branded as a heretic, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. In 1521, Luther came to Worms to explain his attack on the Catholic Church to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the gathered dignitaries of the German lands. What happened at that assembly, called the Diet of Worms, was key to a movement which tore countries apart, set nation against nation, felled kings and plunged dynasties into suicidal bouts of infighting. But why did Martin Luther risk execution to go to the Diet? What was at stake for the big players of medieval Europe and how did events of the Diet of Worms irrevocably change? the history of Europe. With me to discuss the Diet of Worms are the Reverend Dr. Charlotte Methuen, lecturer in Reformation history at the University of Oxford, David Barchi, lecturer in the history of Christian thought at the University of Hull, and Durban McCulloch, professor of the history of the church at Oxford University. Durban McCulloch, in the spring of uh, 1521, Martin Luther, who had been excommunicated, answered the summons of his emperor uh, to explain his actions. He left the the, uh, the theolo- theology faculty at Wittenberg University for the city of Worms. Can you tell us why he went and give us some flavour of the journey? Well, happy days for Luther. This was a triumphal progress across the empire. Suddenly he was a celebrity and people crowded to see him. A priest touched the hem of his garment as he entered the city of Worms. And that gives you a flavour of, although the, the fact that these are happy days, they are also dangerous days. He is going up to Worms almost in the manner of Christ to his crucifixion, and he made that comparison. This is a journey uh, on behalf of God, and it's a journey to present the case of truth to the emperor at the most august assembly of the empire. Having defied the Pope and called the Pope the Antichrist, which was one thing to do, and being excommunicated, he was sort of safe in Saxony in the, as a theologic, professor of theology there. Why did he go? He went uh, first because he felt he had to. He had to present his message. He went because the emperor had summoned him under a safe conduct. He went because he felt that he had to represent truth for God and perhaps die in the process. A hundred years before, uh, a man who had led uh, a reformation in Bohemia had also had a safe conduct to a great assembly, uh, an assembly of the church, and had been burnt despite that safe conduct. So Luther realized that this was a tremendously dangerous situation, but he must go. He must leave the security of Saxony uh, and believe that his patron, the Elector of Saxony, would keep him safe uh, alongside the Emperor. The Elector of Saxony, Frederick III, also called Frederick the Wise, who plays a, a big role in this. But why had Luther fallen out so spectacularly uh, with the p- p- Pope and, and given him such a, a hiding in, uh, in, in, in the works he'd published? The origin is is something which is so central to Christianity that it's the issue about which you have to make a stand. How can you be saved? Luther 
called himself back to a, a theology, a, a way of thinking about salvation, which said that only God can save us. No, we cannot do anything for our salvation. The issue was uh, about uh, the indulgences, which were a way of saying to us that we can do something about our salvation. Luther had simply said what he felt any good Catholic Christian should say, that indulgences were a cheat that uh, only God can save us. There's nothing we can do for our salvation. He'd said that message in public, and it seemed so obvious to him that no one could contradict it. But the Pope and the authorities of the church had told him to shut up. And so the issue for him was salvation. The issue for the authorities was obedience. He had gone on proclaiming that message against constant commands from Rome to be quiet. But the indulgence issue was a very powerful issue for the people and for, uh, for Luther. Fundamentally, the Pope was saying, you can buy salvation if you pay me, the Pope, to, in this case, to uh, keep building uh, St. Peter's, uh, in some cases to get off uh, being, fasting in Lent, uh, and so on and so forth. The buying of salvation was something that, about which he was greatly indignant. That's right. And, of course, in theory, it was much more complicated than that. The indulgence doesn't buy you salvation. But that's how people thought of it. And that's how the sales campaign, which had pushed this particular indulgence, had presented it. And Luther was outraged by that. You and I, he felt, uh, and so had Paul before him in the Bible, cannot do anything for our salvation, least of all buy it. We are in the hands of God. So the indulgence was an offence against God. So this stirred up, it was both political because he had, had the German princes on his side who, 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 who nobody wanted to pay these things, nobody very much wanted to pay these things. So it went straight into the political sphere. David Barchi, uh, in 1520, the year before the Diet was called, it had been a very momentous year for Luther. He published three short books and got himself excommunicated. What did the book say to take on from what Dermot said to cause such offence? Dermot mentioned the central thing, salvation, but can we go a little bit uh, further? Yes, these are the, the three treatises of the of 1520, uh, which, strictly speaking, appear after um, the condemnation of the papal bull. Um, so Luther is digging an even deeper hole for himself and um, finally buries himself uh, in the eyes of the Pope by, by burning the papal bull in December. But between June, when the bull comes out, and December, when uh, he burns it... Uh, the papal the, bull these, is... Sorry, papal, the papal letter, uh, in this case of condemnation... And uh, between, the, between those two dates, um, Luther produces three treatises. Uh, the first, uh, in June, uh, the address to the Christian nobility of the German nation on the Reformation of the Church, um, which um, is exactly what it says. It's an appeal to the Emperor Charles V, uh, the, the new emperor, the young emperor, in which there are many hopes are being, are being set. And Luther also joins in with this idea that uh, this is the man to... Uh, finally, to reform the church in Germany. Uh, what Luther does very cleverly is to combine um, a traditional criticism of the church, which is, um, uh, of, Ro of Rome, I should say, which is that it's been uh, abstracting money in very large amounts from German lands, and combines that with a, um, a fairly solid theological grounding. So he's bringing together a political protest for the first time with a, a theological basis. The theological basis being that all attempts to reform the church, to, to get rid of the abuses which are leading to the, to the, uh, um, the flow of money from Germany to Italy, have failed. Um, 
because uh, the Pope has surrounded himself with three walls, um, the first is that um, only the Pope can um, summon a council, secondly, that only the Pope can interpret the Bible, and thirdly, most importantly perhaps, uh, though it was first in his, in his own order, that uh, the Church teaches that the laity is a second-class Christian. The two-tier idea that if you're, yes. a, obviously if you're a Pope, Cardinal, Bishop, Monk, Nun, you are automatically saved. If you're a lay person, you had to work for it or pay for it. Um, yes, to the extent that in, in uh, some superstitious circles, um, it was a good idea to, uh, if you were a lay person, to be um, uh, laid to rest in a coffin in a monk's cowl. Uh, on the grounds that this would somehow um, uh, uh, give you a safer passage. So, what about the other? Tree? What else was in yes. these three short? These three treatises. Um, that's the first one. The second one was even more revolutionary. It was a. Yeah. Uh, this was the Babylonian captivity of the church. It was a um, uh, a uh, an, uh, an overarching criticism of the sacramental system of the church. Um, Luther radically pairs down the number of sacraments uh, of the church from seven to two or maybe three, uh, baptism, Eucharist, and perhaps confession. <coughs> um, and uh, again, he, he combines a, a the radical theological critique of the sacraments with criticism of the abuses that the sacramental system has led to. And the next the final treatise? And the final one, uh, the most uh, ironic of his treatises uh, from December, The Freedom of a Christian, where Luther is... Um, um, uh, answering objections to his doctrine of justification by faith alone and saying there is a place in the Christian life for works uh, but and it's an essential place, but works are not necessary for salvation. So this was uh, obviously radical enough for not only the Bible, but then he was declared a heretic. Yes. Um, yes. And, but that had to be confirmed by going by the emperor himself, the new young empire, still in his teens, yes. of the biggest uh, Christian empire there had ever been. And this was the first diet that he'd summoned Charlotte Methuen. What did the Pope think of Luther going, as Dermot said, in such triumphant? Because we have to keep this in our minds, that this man was travelling, took him out a month, didn't it, to travel across from Wittenberg to Worms. And it was a triumphal procession. He was received in cities with great dignity. This was a monk. Mm. <laughs> he wasn't a king, an emperor, a bishop or anything. Uh, and away he went. Um, so what was, the, what was Pope Leo X, who was trying to raise masses of money to continue the building of St. Peter's? What, was he, what did he think about this? Well, I'm not sure we know really exactly what, Leo the, what Pope Leo X was thinking about it, but I think what we do know is that um, his, his nuncio in in Worms, had very mixed feelings about, or had very mixed motives for wanting Luther to be there and not to be there. On the one hand, the invitation to Luther to come was made, I think, in the in Aleander's understanding, the nuncio's understanding, on the grounds that if Luther came, he would condemn himself out of his own mouth in Worms. Um, and that was kind of contradicted by the by the by the um, triumphal passage that Luther had. But of course, they didn't know what the triumphal passage was going to look like when they invited Luther to come to Worms. So, from that point of view, um, I don't think we can we can't we can't judge by what they might have been thinking before. Why do you think it was such a triumphal passage? I mean, as has been said uh, by David, these these treatises were quite complicated theologically and so on. This man is in in Wittenberg, and yet all through Germany, they they are receiving him as yeah. there were triumphal passages used by. Dermot to, to set yeah. the scene and by you brought it up yeah. again and I've mentioned it once or twice because you've all said it in your notes <laughs> and books say it and that sort of thing. How did it spread so fast? This man from a very severe sect, Augustinian Eremites yeah. after all, uh, 
uh, went through Europe like a conquering hero? Because I think he was touching a, a, a real nerve within, especially within Germany. There was a lot of anti-papal feeling within Germany. There was not just worry, concern about indulgences, there was huge worry about the fact that, Itali- that German livings, German church livings were being given to Italian princes, that money that German princes, that German secular princes felt ought to be flowing into their coffers was actually flowing into the coffers of Rome and into the coffers of the, of the church. And so I think there was, there was a real sense amongst the political elite that, that things were seriously wrong financially. There was a real sense amongst the lay people that they were being asked to pay for something that they shouldn't have to pay for, a growing sense that this was, that there was something seriously wrong. And Luther's, one of the Luther reasons that Luther started writing in, in German, I mean, David didn't say, but the first and the third treatises in 1520 are written in German. Now, that's quite extraordinary for an academic of the time to be writing in the vernacular. But one of the reasons Luther started to write in German is because his 95 theses were translated illegally into German without his, or without his authorization. And in 1518 and 1519, he starts to write in German. And the printing press means that those writings can be spread very rapidly. He's and not the printing just press is powerful. At, uh, the at, printing uh, press at, is powerful. The Protestants have... Yeah. The, pr- the, the printing press, most... most um, Flugblätter pamphlets, which are being uh, 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 produced in Germany in the, 16th, in the early 16th century, are produced by Protestants. By they're not called Protestants yet, but by those who are supporting Luther's cause, and so it becomes a, a way of um, spreading his ideas. And they're spread not just in the written word. There's amazing pictures, cartoons, caricatures of how churches look under. Um, when an indulgence is being preached, which makes the connection between an indulgence being preached and Jesus going in and turning the t- turning over the tables in the temple. So he defended the papacy, mm. and they thought that if they could get him to Vams under the new emperor, a new young emperor, yeah. he would confirm the yeah. decision that he was a heretic yeah. and he would be burnt. Yeah. And they thought by coming there, he, he, he'd he get him to hang himself, himself to fuse a, 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 a I'm yes. sorry about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but there's one man I want to key in here before you take Frederick the thing on. And this is uh, Frederick the Wise, yeah. Frederick III, the elector yeah. of Saxony, yeah. one of the seven electors yeah. who in fact had elected the new mm-hmm. emperor, seven of them had that. And he was a Roman Catholic. He was a protector of... Uh, of, of Luther. He was a great patron, long-term patron of Durer and mm-hmm. Cranach the Elder, mm-hmm. an enigmatic man. A great um, collector of relics as well. Yes. So, has so a great where did, in where, why did, just to cut to the chase, why did he protect Luther as much as he did? Well, I think, it, it, I'm not sure that it's specifically protecting Luther at the beginning, but one of the, one of the issues that Frederick, for, for one of the reasons why Frederick agrees to get vote for the emperor, for Charles V, is that he gets Charles V to agree that if he's elected emperor, emperor then he will um, assure the empire that nobody will be condemned without trial. So this, in a sense, they've got to try Luther because that's been one of the conditions of one of, of the deals. Of I mean, Charles it's full of election. deals. It's it? the, the, the election is full of deals. There's also a deal going on in fifteen nine in fifteen nineteen during the election that Luther will not be tried just by canon lawyers. He must be tried by people who understand the issues. And this is again Frederick. Though. And what's this is again Frederick, Frederick. What's he nosing in for in this? Well, Frederick, right? Frederick wants the elect to the electors and the princes of the empire to have more power. Right. Forms. It's so part using of, Luther. 
He's using Luther. Yes, mm. Worms is part of the Diet of Worms. Is part of a very long um, progress of diets, or which which are about reforming the systems of the empire. So it's the culmination of 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 of. Of, of a process which gi- which gives more power to the territorial princes, of whom the electors are the most important, because they the seven electors elect the, the, the emperor. Dermot, can you tell us the diet had been running for several weeks? It ran from January till about June. Yeah, no, it ran for, but it had been run for several weeks before mm. Luther came. Is what I was going to say, Charlotte. It, it ran in eventually for about six months. Can you give listeners an idea of, of what business was to be conducted over these six months? Why it was so important? Well, there is so much business. That time apart from Luther Mm. Uh, and one is the fact that uh, Europe as a whole apart from the empire is threatened by the Turks and there's a (coughs) a constant need to try and uh, raise forces against the Turks and they they are a real threat and you you might call this a clash of civilizations It, it was that Christendom might actually disappear uh, and be overwhelmed by this great empire from the east. So that may have been the thing on uh, most people's minds, certainly on the emperor's mind, because the emperor has a, a worldwide vision. He's got an empire in America. He's got frontiers to defend in Spain, uh, not just the empire. And a war with France. A war with France. So there are so many different issues, and yet Luther's issue sort of pushes its way through in this business, the issue of the obedience of one monk to the two great powers of medieval Europe, the Pope and the Emperor. Already, uh, this monk had defied one of those great powers, the Pope. Now, the great urgent question was, would he defy the Emperor as well? Would he uh, stand up to this great universal figure of the medieval world? The great universal figure is 18 or 19 years old, isn't it, the new Emperor? Yeah, but the office is greater than the man. I know, I'm and, not and, running him down. I'm <laughs> just saying that it just adds to the occasion for me that there you have this man of it's, the it's greatest teenager. power in Christendom, and he's a teenager. A teenager in the middle, devoutly uh, a son of the church, mm. hugely conscious of his universal role. He was mm. told by his advisors that he, he may be the culmination of all time. Mm. He may be the man who will sort out the world, it will lead it to a new great reformation. Uh, think of the responsibility for a, a, a rather serious-minded, rather unimaginative 19-year-old. But also a, a 19-year-old who speaks no German. Mm. And I think that's that's actually a really important point that 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 all that Charles is getting at the diet has to be mediated through those who who can communicate with the, the only German speaking. Some and of the princes. Of course, he's speaking the language of the hated enemy, French. Yes. Born up, uh, born and brought up in the, in the Low Countries, mm. so he speaks French yes. in the Diet, and everything has to be translated. We've got about seventy or eighty princes at this mm-hmm. Diet, and we have different sorts: independent yeah. people from cities in Germany, from principalities, of course, mm-hmm. principalities, bishop, archbishops, and so on, with their retinues. Mm-hmm. We have a massive gathering mm-hmm. uh, there, and yet we're going to concentrate, obviously, on Luther here. We. The Turkish issue, the issue of titles of various sorts. This was uh, Charles's chance to give out um, uh, the deeds to new bishoprics and that all over. One amazing Not just patronage. Give out the deeds, going. actually to make the appointments, make and that's appointments. important for Luther because it means that a lot of people with very high church interests are there, and it also means that the whole issue about papal. Um, interest and whether or not these high church positions are going to go to the German nobility or to the Italian nobility, those are, they're very high on people's agendas and that's important because I think it means that the anti-papal feeling amongst the princes is quite high. Can I cut though to with David, David Archie, to Luther. He turns up uh, 
What's the lineup for and against him in this assembly? Can you give us some? Can you can you manage to <laughs> encapsulate that? Um, it's not that easy to to look back at the people who are there and to put them all into into camps uh, for or against. So it is it is certainly uh, the case in with some of them. The um, overall impression, certainly that uh, Catholic, Catholic observers such as the nuncio gives, is that there's a great deal of um, support for Luther. Mm. But I th- this is not, I think we've got to be aware this isn't blanket support. They support some aspects of what Luther has been saying, but not all. And the revolutionary treatises of 1520 that I mentioned um, is the first sign that Luther's um, influence base is being eroded because he's going a bit too far for some people. The, the, the idea of reform up until this time had been set very firmly within a mould set by Erasmus. That was to get rid of the abuses, but not to challenge any of the doctrinal basis of the church. And um, a lot of the of the um, deals going on at Worms were about how one separates out the good stuff in Luther and the bad stuff, condemning the bad stuff, but somehow preserving uh, uh, the, the truth of what he's saying. Uh, Dermot, can you take it? So he goes into this hall. He, they keep him waiting for most of the day. Then towards the end of the day, he goes in to be questioned and tried. What happens then? Let, can we just concentrate on the event now for a few minutes? Well, he's shown here a large pile of his books and asked um, if he can defend them. Who's he them. confronted by? I mean, he's got these all these ambassadors and our cardinals and all, all in yep. finery, and he goes in in his monk's mm. robe, presumably. Yep. yep. The, and, well, uh, the emperor's there. Aleander, the pope's representative, is there, to say the, the elect of the princes. The archbishop of Trier is there, um, the, uh, the um, elector of Brandenburg. George of Saxony, who's an interesting person because he's Friedrich's cousin, and he's very for church reform, but he's very anti-Luther. Um, Frederick of Baden, who becomes um, later. So they're all there. They're all there. So you've got some people there. There's a, there's a small group, a commission, that's been chosen to, to sort of hear Luther's case, about half of whom are for him and about half of whom are more against him. So coming back to you, Dermot, what happened? Well, there he is, confronted by his books uh, as, as uh, a way of showing what a heretic he is, and he simply admits they're all his. And interrogated by one of his great intellectual opponents. That's uh, Eck, isn't it? Eck, yes. Yeah, and Eck, who he'd had a spat with in yes. Leipzig. And, uh, and, yes, and, and in effect lost. Um, Eck had managed to get him into a corner mm. and, and made him identify with that bohemian heretic of a hundred years before, Jan oh, Hus. Yes. He, he, uh, and, and Luther had had to say Hus was not all bad. And that's a tantamount to admission of heresy. The councils could make a mistake, which also put some of the people who were for the conciliar movement, for the idea that councils had the authority in the church, off Luther. He gets in late afternoon, April 7, 1521. He's faced by all his books and Van Eyck. And Van Eyck says, did you write these books? Do you recant expecting, wanting a yes and a a yes and a yes? I wrote Mm. these books and I recant. Mm. Instead of which Luther said... I wanted I wanted day to think about this. Now, why did you say that? I think because this is such an important moment of his life. I mean, he he could face death by making, giving the wrong answer. Yes, he had written the books. Yes, he stood by them. And now, in effect, he's being asked to say, "I was wrong, and I wish to crave mercy from the church." And mm-hmm. that's what he's got to think about. Could he say that? And mm-hmm. in the end, we find out the following day, he could not say he that. He couldn't. So take us to the next day then, Charlotte, as briefly as you, as is, as is decorous. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, they come back the next day into a bigger hall. The second day is much bigger. 
um, a much bigger event. And that's when Luther makes his speech, which is has often been ca- characterised or caricatured as here I stand, I can do no other. It's pretty clear he didn't say that, but the essence is that he said, yes, I do stand by this. And he expected... He, it was, it, what, I haven't got it in front of me. It was, it was, uh, it was not honourable and not practical to go against your conscience. Yes. But he said, here I stand on previous occasions, hadn't he? Never mind, that's what we remember it by. Well, it's what we me- he didn't say it, but it's what he didn't we remember. He didn't say it there, but he said it... <laughs> He does seem to have said, God help me, mm. amen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's expanded yes. by one of his later biographers, about 40 years later, into the yeah. famous phrase, here yeah. I stand, yeah. I can I do no other. But I read in your note, Charlotte, that you said, he'd said, here I stand at previous, in, in no, previous that debates. No, wasn't me, must wasn't be somebody you. else. <laughs> else that. Right, let's get on with that. We, we, we've got him in the hall, and he's, 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 he's doing exactly what Egg didn't want him to do. Yes, exactly. And, and exactly what he must have thought would lead to him being burnt. So because he, he has do? the expe- expectation from, the, from Jan Hus that Jan Hus had not had his safe conduct um, honoured. So he leaves. And then the emperor <laughs> takes a day no, to decide what I'm to sorry, do. I'm, I'm, I'm probably, probably going on a bit too much, but I think it's very important. Um, I mean, he, or whichever, he addresses this large gathering in a way that Eck and those who were against him had manoeuvred him into a position where they thought he could not possibly do yeah. this. Yeah. But he did, he gave a great speech in defence of himself. Can you just give us a flavour of that, one of you? David, do you want to do this? Um, Luther's speech. Well, yeah, just the three points he made. Yes. Three sorts of books he Three written. sorts of books. Yes, he says there are three types of books that, that, that have been presented that I'm being asked to, to, to recant. The first are books of Christian instruction and, and, and pious devotion, which no Christian could possibly want to, to, um, to recant. The second are those which attack the exactions um, and um, uh, claims of the Roman papacy, which it would be dangerous to retract because that would be, in effect, to defend those same exactions. And the third category of book, this is where he gives away a little, those written against defenders of the papacy, Mm. people like Eck, in fact. And uh, these, perhaps, he says, I've written with uh, um, more uh, um, venom than befits my my, my calling. Mm. Um, But still, he then says, I'm not going to attract them, Mm. even so. So so that's what he's left with. Uh, He doesn't step back at all. And he's quite clear that that he says that if... If he can be shown to have spoken against scripture by use of scripture, then he's prepared to retract. But unless somebody can show him by use of scripture that he's spoken against scripture, then, then he stands by it. And what was the reaction then that he'd said all this then? Um, and he concluded, and what happened then? Well, the emperor now has to make a decision as to what to do. And Luther had been given a day to decide what to do. He has done it. Now the emperor goes away and waits to make a decision. So we have yet another night at which the entire estates of Germany wait on one man to see what the future holds. Will the emperor condemn him alongside the pope? Will the emperor then send him to the flames, or will he not? Is the Morix a further examination of Luther? Then the emperor decides... The emperor decides what? Let's finish the story. I mean, we know the ending, but it's nice to be told it. (laughs) But the emperor does a very honourable thing, uh, but also a very decisive thing. He, he says two things. One is that Luther is now an outlaw of the empire. empire. He is a heretic. 
And the other thing he says is that still Luther's safe conduct will be honoured. He will leave the Diet without arrest. So it's a very odd situation. Just back to Frederick the Wise, who we mentioned earlier in the programme, the Elector of Saxony uh, at the University of Witten, at, in which at the University of Wittenberg Luther was a professor of theology. He had an influence there, as I understand it, with the Emperor on that matter. Very much so. And the, the electors determined that Luther should survive, and, and that's the pressure on the emperor. And more specifically, there's, there's a promise which the, the emperor has made to Frederick that Luther will get a hearing yeah. by a panel of learned um, theologians. Does that happen? And this has not happened yet. So yeah. what happens after these, these, these momentous events in public is a series of meetings that Luther has with a much smaller commission, which is made up very fairly of um, half pro-Luther and half anti-Luther, and um, they attempt to um, uh, get him to recant by, by disputing with him. Uh, the, 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 uh, um, the papal party had been very clear that Luther was not going to be allowed to dispute publicly, to turn Worms into another Leipzig and get, a, and get another mm. public relations victory. So the disputation was going to carry on behind locked doors. Um, this goes on for two, three days, um, but again... Luther does not retract anything that he said, and the thing fizzles out. And a twist in this strange and momentous event, Dermot, is that safe passage is granted, but it's just to the outskirts of the city of Worms, and it could need not apply <laughs> afterwards. So Luther crosses a boundary, a, a geographical boundary, and he's kidnapped. People yes. think it's either the emperor or the pope, but it's Frederick the Wise. <laughs> this is the perfect solution. <laughs> he is literally kidnapped and taken to a castle and kept there yeah. for 12, 10 months. The perfect solution, because there is no solution to this. Um, here is an outlaw. He ought to be arrested. <clears throat> and instead, he disappears. Uh, kidnapped by who knows whom. Well, we know it was Frederick. We know now. Uh, <laughs> but people at the time did not. You know, the, a vast astonishment in Germany. Where is Luther? And there he is holed up in a castle, disguised as Junker Jörg. Living under a staircase. I mean, it yeah. really gets better and better, doesn't it? I mean, it's due my territory, this. This is, of course, when his constipation comes on, the famous constipation which is supposed to cause the Reformation. It's just being stuck in a castle. You, you would, wouldn't you? Well, under a staircase. Mm. No, but seriously, so, so, why, again, that's Frederick Wise taking extreme measures to protect him. I'm fascinated by it. Obviously, Ruther is the... The main man in this discussion, I have something out of a horrible phrase to use, but there you go. He's been used, it's alive, we can't do anything about it. But Frederick the Wise did all this again. Yeah. Why did well, he do he's all He's protecting this? himself at this point. How is um, he doing that? Because uh, one of the um, provisions, both of the Pope's condemnation and of the Edict of Worms, mm -hmm. the Emperor's uh, proclamation, is that not only Luther, as a heretic, is now an outlaw, but also anyone who protects him, anyone who gives him succour, anyone who gives him shelter or food. Now, we know that Luther eventually, and Luther knows eventually he's going to go back into the protection of Frederick the Wise, but this cannot be publicly known. Frederick cannot afford that to, to be known, because otherwise he'd be in contempt of the emperor and of the Diet. Um, so uh, Frederick is protecting Luther, certainly, but he's also protecting his own reputation as a loyal um, uh, member of the empire. No. I, I just find it very very strange indeed. Why is Frederick doing this? Because he, he never implemented the Reformation no. in his life. 
uh, in Saxony. He allowed it to be implemented in certain towns in Saxony. But what is the motive? I, I, I just really don't understand what Charlotte, Frederick's you're shaking your head at all. Well, I, I mean, I think it is very confusing, but I, I think for Frederick it is part of, it's partly about territorial independence within Germany. The fact that Frederick, for instance, has not allowed the indulgences to be promulgated in Saxony, that was partly because he wanted to get his own money from similar practices, but he wouldn't allow that to happen. He wouldn't have the, um, the papal bull preached in Saxony. This is partly about Frederick the Wise say, being able to determine I mean, what happens in his own territory. And that seems to me to be one of the very fundamental results of the Diet of Worms, in fact, is that somehow, not in word and not in theory, but in practice, it has been become established that, that a prince has that kind of religious power in his own territory. Let's now talk about the aftermath. One aftermath, I might slip in now, is that it, at this castle in which he was, uh, to which he was taken, he began to translate the Bible into yes, yeah. uh, German, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a great event, uh, a defining event. But did... Um, how did what happened at Worms play generally in the empire and what effect did it have on Luther? Kind of a general, uh, an overall view. So he goes from Worms, he's kidnapped. What does everybody say? What's happened there that people take on board? People have heard him speak. I mean, it's quite clear, for instance, that the person who's going to become the, the Duke of, of, of Schleswig-Holstein and later the, the, the King of Denmark is profoundly influenced by what he's heard. I mean, so many people have heard his message. Exactly, the, yeah. because especially with this second condemnation where he makes his the second day where it's a much bigger room, it's, they've got packed a lot of people in. So people have heard him speak. There are a lot of merchants as well at, at Worms. It's not just a political event. Mm. It's also a, a sort of trade event where people come together to find out what's going on. And so... At those people take Luther take Luther's message out into the empire. So I think it's a profoundly a, a mission event we would call it now. <laughs> but I think there's a much more profound uh, result about this, and it's, it's a great question which haunted Europe over the next um, the rest of the 16th century, the next century or so: resistance or obedience. Mm. What Luther has now done at the Diet of Worms is resist the two great powers of the medieval world: the Pope now the emperor. Mm. And you might say that he's obeying a basic biblical command, it is better to obey God than man. That's the command of the book of Acts. That, you might say, then, is Luther's destiny. But over the next few years, he finds that obedience is Mm. actually something that God wants as well. When the peasants rebelled in 1525, Luther's reaction was that they had done something profoundly evil Mm-hmm. and that they must be suppressed, executed, mm-hmm. tortured. And he suddenly realised there's another great biblical command. Mm-hmm. Obey the powers that are there because they are ordained of God. Yeah. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. And you might say that the rest of the Reformation is a struggle between those two great principles. Yeah. Obey God rather than man, but obey the powers that God has put there. Mm-hmm. And Luther who's not a very logical man, has to battle with that for the rest of his life and, I must say, doesn't make a great success of it. Mm. It must be said that Worms is, in many ways, the high point of Luther's life and many of the biographers uh, of Luther in the past have stopped there because this is a wonderful um, position where you have this um, unknown monk standing at, withstanding the, the great powers of the empire. After that, he becomes a much less attractive person. He um, uh, attacks Erasmus, 
he loses he loses that that support. After Worms, um he condemns the peasant the peasants as uh, Dermot said. Can we stay with the peasants a bit? Because yes. we're now going after that. You call it the farmers revolt, Charles. Yeah. I know you're yeah. bursting to tell everybody it's the farmers revolt, <laughs> not the peasants revolt. So right. explain why it's farmers, and then and then let's discuss this idea that these people had been inspired by Luther. Yeah. He was he was their hero. Uh, he was their leader, and yeah. then and they he rose up. Their, he wasn't he was their hero. He wasn't their leader. No, I think that's, that's right. Sorry, I call them farmers I'm just because a it's a better translation. He was their hero. They were inspired by yeah, him absolutely. and they rose up in rebellion yeah. and he turned on them yeah exactly i call them what farmers because they're better they're, i think it's a better translation of, of the bar than, than, than the peasants yeah. which rather makes you think of the sort of the underlings and these were yeoman farmers these are people who probably quite often own land or have some kind of title to land but they have no political representation whatsoever it's very very noticeable that they are not represented at the diet there's no, there's no way that they, they can have their voice heard. And so these are people with a justifiable political issue, a, a political complaint, and they, they find in Luther's message the idea that I can, through reading the Bible myself, can understand my salvation, can understand, understand how I might be inspired to discover what God wants for me. They, they, discover that, they discover in that a message of revolt, of rebellion. And the farmers' uprising, as I tend to call it, as opposed to the peasants' war, um, is is partly inspired. No doubt at all, but it's partly inspired by Luther's theology. You see that in the, in their statements. So, what was the consequence of his condemnation? What did it do for his uh, reputation? What did it do for their uh, their movement? Well, well I'd say huge disappointment, yeah. vast yeah. disappointment. Yeah. You can say the Reformation uh, reaches a real crisis in 1525 yeah. to 6 yeah. because those, those country people who heard that exciting message suddenly found that, they, in effect, they'd been let down. Yeah. And uh, much of the rest of the story of the Reformation is the way in which either it's going to be uh, a spirited Reformation revolution or is it going to be led by magistrates, by princes. Mm. Luther's point, uh, why he condemned those farmers, Charlotte's absolutely right about that, that re- correction there, is that these people have not been ordained by God to rule. Mm. They have no right mm. to assert themselves politically. That was their crime against God. Mm. Uh, and only princes can rebel against other princes. Uh, so resistance is a matter of God telling authorized people to rebel. But this is very much in contradiction with his idea that priesthood uh, could be bestowed on anyone if a group of people but, landed on a, on an island and, and elected someone in or out of wedlock. He said, but, that, but, that, but that's I think that's li- although Luther is trying to say there is no division between ecclesiastical and secular as far as as far as your access to salvation is concerned, he still doesn't want to say that 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 ecclesiastical freedom breaks down secular hierarchies, and so. I mean, this whole theory, the theology of order, is very, very important for Luther. It's not, it's not just after 1525. It's already there in, in embryo, I would say, in 1520. Um, the whole idea that, that, he, that he expands in the freedom of the Christian, that if you're a shoemaker, you're, if you're called by God to be a shoemaker, you're called by God to be the best shoemaker you can be. If you're called by God to be a preacher, you're called by God to be the best preacher you can be, but it doesn't give you better access to salvation. Right. David, you were taking us on the downward track of Luther, so we've had the peasants' revolt, and after that... Yes, I I was was going to mention, uh, of course, his uh, um, um, infamous... Um, anti-Jewish writings. That's in forty-three. In, 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 towards few, the end of his life. Yes. Before that, he he, he writes a treatise, uh, which is which is very much um, uh, um, philo-Semitic, but um, 
uh, that as as he becomes um, disillusioned, perhaps, but certainly as he um, expects the imminent end of the world, and uh, um, and and expects uh, or expected Jews to convert en masse to Christianity, and it hasn't happened. He gets very frustrated at that. He writes, as I as I understand it, a, a violent anti-Semitic yes. book, which was taken up by uh, put pushed into print again when, oh, yes. by the Nazis yes. and yes. used extensively that. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, uh, Luther was uh, um, idolised by the Nazis, not mm-hmm. just as a um, a German hero, but also for his and perhaps particularly for his for his anti-Semitic writings. He, he, um, Luther did not envisage the concentration camps, but certainly he called for the burning of Jewish homes and businesses. Um, and, and so it, 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 he was used as a blueprint for the, for the 1930s. Can we come back... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Can we come back finally as we're coming towards the end of this programme, which is a pity. Um, there you go. Um, come back finally to the, th- to the theological question. What, what was the big theological shift uh, which then, as it were underlay so much that happened over the next centuries in various complicated political, theological battles, not only in Europe, but all around the world. Can you just try to summarise that for us? The one great success in Luther's career is to establish a basic principle about the Western form of Christianity in its Protestant form, and that is justification by faith alone, a technical term. What it means is you and I cannot do anything for our salvation. God does it all. Uh, we uh, are given a gift of faith by God in his word. That is the only route to salvation. That remains at the basis of Protestantism. And it's a great liberating thing because it means you're not caught up in desperately trying to do things for salvation. It gives you a big problem because you then ask, well, why should I bother being good? Or perhaps more important, why should I bother not being bad if God is going to do it all for me? And that's a, a troubling little question for all <laughs> Protestants. But this remains the principle of Protestantism. And it is liberating because it leaves you alone in front of God. And I think even as Christianity may have been stripped away from Western, much of Western culture, that remains the distinctive product of the Reformation. You and I are individuals in front of our fate. We may call that fate God. But that is at the centre of the achievements of Western civilization over the last 400 years. Final word, Charlotte? No? No, there isn't much time, is it? It's not far. <laughs> no, well, I'm just a flannel a bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that was terrific. So that's the flanning I'm going to do. Uh, thank you very much to David McCulloch, uh, David Barchi and Charlotte Methuen. And uh, next week we'll be talking about early Chinese science and what's called the Needham question. All will be revealed next Thursday. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4.